I welcome everybody to the Carolina Bible Group Bible Study Voice Room. Uh, today's study will be study number 67 in our uh, Angels and Giants Factor Fiction series, and the date stamp for today is 11 13 uh, 22. Our purpose uh, in this entire study series is to investigate the angels and giants mentioned in Scripture, and by doing so, alleviate some of the confusion that some scripture verses seem to generate. And uh, as I've t- continually said going through this, uh, Revelation contains uh, 70-some-odd mentions of the word angel. And there are many other spirit beings in the book of Revelation uh, that are mentioned as well that exist within God's realm of creation. Uh, just because you can't see them, just because you've never seen them doesn't mean that they don't exist. It doesn't mean that they are not in existence somewhere. Most uh, most of these you'll find in the <coughs> literally in the heavenly places in the the throne room of God. Uh, but they are mentioned in the Scripture, and they're worth our study. Morning, baby. So we thought it worthwhile as we go through the Book of Revelation to to go through these and to to note each uh, each of these angels as best we can and uh, try to glean a little bit for our edification and our growth in the Word and growth of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the point of the whole thing. It's the point of this whole study as we go through is to learn as much about these angels as possible um, and, and how God uses them mainly. Uh, each one has its own purpose, as we will note um, going through our study uh, as we look at Revelation this morning. So, last week we, we looked at Revelation 14, <coughs> excuse me, and the six angels noted in the chapter, uh, as well as the particular events that are associated with each, uh, as they poured out their vials. Uh, as we read last week. So for today's study, I want to continue our look at the particular angels in the Revelation uh, by moving on to chapters 15 and 16. And they sort of go together. You can't really separate 15 and 16 out, although they are delineated uh, differently in the Scripture. Chapter 15 only has eight verses. And so it it blends in and, and sort of just flows right into chapter 16 anyway. <clears throat> so we'll kind of look at 15 and 16 together. Uh, so I want to look at those, and, and I want to review the angels that are mentioned in these two chapters as well. And and they're kind of unique in uh, in their existence and in what they do. So turn with me this morning, if you would, for just a few minutes. Let's take a look at... For our study today, let's take a look at Revelation 15, Revelation 16, and the angels mentioned therein, and it starts off in Revelation 15. Remember, our reporter John is our man on the scene in the heavenlies, and he has somehow been moved to where he can view the events of the Lord's Day. And uh, everybody hear me okay? Is it just Kate? Okay, thanks, Tony. So John is continually reporting back. The things that he is reporting, remember, are not necessarily in chronological order. 
they're in the order that he's being shown them, which is not necessarily chronologically arranged. And I want to make sure that you understand that as we go through. But he is reporting back what he sees. And so 15 continues on with that as we go through it. And remember, these are the things leading up to the revelation, or in the Greek, the apocalypsis, the unveiling of, the personal presence of. Uh, you may hear a dog or two cry out occasionally here, around here, because we have several. <coughs> but anyway, uh, the personal presence of the Lord on the Lord's day. That's what, that's what the revelation is all about. So turn with me, Revelation 15.1, <clears throat> and we will begin. John says, and I saw <clears throat> another sign in heaven. Another being the word alos there in the Greek. And that word for another, and I think this is important, because it signifies a continual pouring out of the revelation of these signs. Uh, so, allos here means another of the same kind. Just like John has already seen these signs, allos means another, more one or another of the same, kind of like in a, uh, almost as in its, as if it's denoting numerical distinction between what we're looking at. It's like, well, here's sign number one, here's sign number two, here's sign number three, almost in a progression of signs. And that's what we see as John is being shown these things by these, by these angels. And so he says, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels. There's the seven angels again. Now, we've noted that the seven angels are mentioned. Uh, <coughs> this, this term occurs seven times. Here it's in verse uh, 6, verse 7, verse 8. It's in chapter 16, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1, and chapter 21, uh, verse 9. It says also, see Appendix 197, part 6. Now, if you've never read Appendix 197 in the back of the Companion Bible, it will help you greatly with your overall 35,000 foot view of the revelation, I promise you. Uh, read Appendix 197 at your leisure if you can, and it will help you greatly with being able to rightly divide and understand what's going on in the book of the Revelation. I promise you. So, back to the verse. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels. These are likely the same seven angels that we've been talking about all along as we go through the book of the Revelation. Seven angels having the seven last plagues. The last plagues? <clears throat> That's what the scripture says. That it has the seven last plagues. And I want you to note that these plagues, it says, let's read the rest of the verse. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. In the seven last plagues is the filling of the wrath of God upon the face of the earth. 
the word filling there, note that this that these seven last plagues fill up or teleo, which means to make a full end or to consummate God's wrath. These last seven plagues almost act as a pleroma for the last wrath of God that's being poured out on the earth. And I don't I don't know how else to say that other than to point out the way the verse puts it and to go back to the Greek leads me to believe that this is the end, this is the wrath, this is the last of God's wrath as it is brought full and brought to bear upon the face of the earth <clears throat> by God himself through these angels. So it says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Have you ever stopped to think for a minute about that term, the wrath of God? You ever looked that up in the scripture? The wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is whatever he deems it to be at a particular moment that he pours it out upon whoever he chooses to pour it out on. The wrath of God on mankind, part of it is death. There's a verse that mentions the wrath of God abideth upon him. Speaking of death, I can't remember exactly where it is. But if you look up this term, the wrath of God, it's an interesting term. God meads out his wrath according to his plan and his purpose and his goodwill. So the wrath of God is not something to be taken very lightly. It's a, the wrath of God is, um, a heavy thing. No. Trust me. Nobody wants to be on the receiving end of the wrath of God. Many, many down through history have. And it, uh, from what I see in the scripture, it's not a good place to be standing. So he says in verse 2, And I saw as it were a sea of glass. John reporting yet what he sees as he's there in the Spirit on the Lord's day and these things are being revealed to him. And either you believe this or you don't. It's very simple. You either believe what John's saying or you don't. So he said, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that have gotten the victory over the beast, uh, wait a minute. We were just talking about the beast a little while ago and we saw where they were killed. You remember that? Well, evidently, there are some that get victory over the beast. So, here's a new twist. So, he said that them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, he saw them stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. So, these have been through a battle. They have defeated the beast and them that have his image. You see that? So there's a, a little bit of a chronological hint here to what John is seeing at this particular time, even though he doesn't come right out and say it. So you see the you see what I mean about the so this has to take place. He's looking at the ones that won the battle with the beast and those that had his image. And so, in my mind, 
chronologically, that places it after wherever that battle is. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. So you see a little bit of a chronological element here to this, to this verse 2 that we're reading. I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. He saw them stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. That's interesting. That kind of reminds me of the streets of gold. It, it, it appeared to them, or him, as, as the glass was transparent. I mean, the gold yeah. was transparent. Yeah, it said uh, a sea of glass mingled with fire is the way he explains it. Yeah. It's a pretty, pretty amazing like a sea of glass. And, and of course, in that realm, in the heavenly realm, there are going to be things that exist that would blow our mind. We don't know. That defy, they would literally defy our physical laws on this side of that arrangement. Yeah. He says in verse 3, of these that he saw standing there, <coughs> he says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. So what does that tell you about the relationship of this sign that we're reading about in the Revelation and the children of Israel? This is uh, These things are all related to Abraham and his hope, the hope of Israel. Yeah. And it makes sense then that they sung, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. They refer to him as King. As Lord God Almighty, King. And that is the relationship between Israel and Christ. He's the King after the line of David. The King that will reign. And rule with a rod of iron for a period of time. So the song that they sing to me makes perfect sense. These are the ones that have the victory. They're basically singing the victory song here. Over those that took the beast and over the beast. and uh, Those that took the mark of the beast. And over the beast and all those that we've already read about. I can kind of see how this guy did. Or got the ability to put a tune with Deuteronomy. Oh, yeah. 32. Deuteronomy 32. I've got that paper. Right. He literally did a song of the Song of Moses. And and it really really works out. So, some way he he got the ability to put a tune with that I don't know if it would be comparable to what these were saying in your life, but it, it seems to make sense that all that was written as a song rather than right. yes, verses of Scripture. And he goes on in verse 40, your point, Dad. He said, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? It's all about the praise and the adoration and the glory of the one that's being praised here. He said, For thou only art holy. 
How true is that? How true is that? For all nations, it says, shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. The judgments of God are made known. They're made manifest. They're shown here in the wrath that's being poured out. Do you think these judgments of God and this pouring out of wrath, do you think it's fair? Do you think it's just? Do you think it's holy? I do. I don't think it really matters what we think. I think that's probably the best way to say it. It doesn't matter what we think. Mm -hmm. The scripture says this is the wrath of God. God has therefore deemed that wrath is necessary. So he's made a judgment, right? A crisis in the Greek. He is judged, and based on his judgment, there's some wrath and some judgment needed. And some things have to be meted out according to his judgment. Well, this, you he know, says, this is kind of like songs, you know. Psalms, a lot of songs could be a song. And I think if you go back, I'm not going to go back and look at all the notes regarding what these what these that stand on the sea of glass say, but it's it's likened to songs that are mentioned in the Psalms, if you look in the notes on the Companion Bible. I think it takes away from the authority of God when we try to distinguish what's right and wrong. That's not our place. Yeah, it's not our place to determine. That's a good point. I want everybody to understand that. It's not our place as humans because I've actually been talking with people and you tell them something happened in the scripture and they say, well, that ain't very fair. And I'm like, well, congratulations for judging God. You know, that's a little bit of a precarious position to be in, isn't it? It's up to us to understand it and it's up to us to accept it. But not to judge or pass our man's judgment on whether something of God is holy or not. He has an absolute right. He has absolute power, not us. And that that's a good thing to remember. That's a good point to bring out. And I appreciate you doing it. He says, listen to what they say. Uh, for thy judgments are made manifest. Thy judgments, God. Not ours, but yours. Thy judgments are made manifest. That's in verse 4. Then verse 5. <clears throat> um. He goes on to say, and after that, so there's another little bit of a chronological element here. John says, after that I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Wait a minute, what? Now the behold is not there in the original text, but John says, after these sang the song. He said, I looked after that. And the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Alright. How many want to know what the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony is in the heavens? Did you even know that it was there? The word testimony there... <coughs> In verse 5 is the Greek word marturion. Guess what it means? It means evidence given or a witness of evidence. 
So we're setting up for the wrath of God to be meted out. We're setting up for God's judgments to be taken into account. We're setting up for God to even the score or to even the ledger because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And that's what you find that Revelation is dealing with a lot, is God evening up the score. God balancing out, it's the Lord's balance, as Ronnie likes to call it. It's God balancing out the ledger, so to say, with creation. So John says in verse 5, After that I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the evidence given. There is evidently in the heavens a temple with a tabernacle. And God preserves the evidence as to why the judgment is needed. Did you know that? Have you ever thought about that? Why would that be necessary? Because God is just and He is perfect. God is not going to carry out something that He don't have a reason for doing. So now, in preparation for what's about to take place with the seven angels, there's a temple opened in the heavens that contains, guess what? The evidence. The reasons why the judgment must be meted out. Isn't that something? God doesn't just tread out the wine press of fierceness and wrath because it makes him feel better. He does it because his own perfection demands it. That's what I want you to know. God does not take pleasure in the destruction of human life. But, but to preserve holiness and to preserve just, justness, it has to be done. It's like punishing a child. Nobody enjoys punishing a child. He chastens them that he loves. God doesn't take any pleasure in this, I don't think. But he realizes that it has to be done. The, the purging, the cleansing of those that stand against him must be meted out. Or he can never be all and in all. Do you see what I'm saying? These steps that we read about in Revelation doesn't matter what it is, are all moving toward a one goal, that God is all and that He is in all. And that creation is once again perfect in God's eyes. It's the balance. The Lord's balance. And you say, well, that's what Ronnie says, and that's fine. That's what I call it, is the Lord's balance. That's what He's working toward. That's where we're headed, is the Lord's balance. And when everything is balanced out, He will once again be all, and not only all, but in all. And all things will be reconciled back unto Himself, and the ledger will be balanced within God's plan. Now, I don't want to oversimplify it, But that's where we're headed. 
And if you'll keep that in mind as you read the Revelation, you will understand that for each of these things that's meted out, there's a debt owed. And that it has to be done. Or there can be no cleansing of that which is wrong. And God could never be, once again, all and in all. So, as we go through Revelation, keep that in mind. We're headed toward the balance. Where God is all and God is in all. So he says, and after that, verse 5, I looked. And the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Well, let's see what's in it. Verse 6. Oh boy. And the seven angels came out of the temple. Rutrow. They, you mean they've been in there where the evidence is? Evidently. Evidently. The seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues. Uh-oh. Clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. They are 100% pure, but they can, they have with them the seven plagues that are going to befall the earth and those on the earth. The seven angels. Verse seven. This is interesting. I, I, to me, it just blows my mind where we're going with all this. And watching what these angels actually do according to the plan and the will of the Father. These angels don't make this stuff up. They are, they've known that they've got to do this probably for eons. They probably stand at the ready. Because for them, time means nothing. Let's read verse 7. Ah, we're back to one of the four beasts. Remember the four beasts? Right around the throne there are four beasts. Remember the four living creatures as we discussed earlier in Revelation. (coughs) There's also twenty and four elders on the outside circle of the four beasts. So you got the throne, the four beasts around the throne, and then around the four beasts are the twenty and four elders. Let's read what it says. One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God. You see that? Uh oh. There's going to be some wrath poured out on the face of the earth. So one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels, seven golden vials, probably one vial to every angel, full of the wrath of God. The wrath of God who what? If you're looking for a term in the Scripture that deals with unending existence, Existence without time involved. Here it is. If a, if a statement is said of God who liveth forever and ever, 
You remember what I said about the term forever and ever? That every time you see it in Scripture, you need to be looking at it, see what it means? So we'd be crazy not to look and see what this one means. This one is literally talking about the time span of the Creator God. Does it not? Does it not say, uh, One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever? It's describing how long God lives. So we need to go to Appendix 151. We're going to do this. And I want to read this definition. It's on page 176 in the appendices of the Companion Bible. And if ever you're looking for a term to describe the longevity of our Creator, here it is, direct from Scripture. It's in Appendix 151, Section 2, Part Capital A, uh, Subpart II, Item 9, Subitem A, if you want to look it up. It's on page 176 in the back of the Companion Bible, and here's what the term means. It's the Greek form, and I'm going to try to pronounce this, and translated into the English, it means to the ages of the ages. Here in Revelation chapter 15, it is rendered forever and ever. But the Greek term literally means to the ages of the ages. Ages have a beginning and an end, and ages of ages of ages of... Uh, it, to me, it implies just something that doesn't end. To the ages of the ages. Ages of ages? It's like a, a double positive. This is, this is how the Scripture describes God's longevity. In my mind, at least it... It describes the longevity of the Father. If you're looking for one word that means literally what we think forever and ever without end is, this is it, in my, in my opinion. Now, you can take that or leave it. But from a scriptural standpoint, this is the term. Because if it describes God who liveth, who exists forever and ever, this is the one. This is the term. So I wanted to bring that out. And make sure that you saw that and understood that. <coughs> Let's read 7 again. One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. Yes, thank you, Tony, for posting those notes concerning that term. Because I think you need to circle this one in your appendices or... Mark it somehow, highlight it, however you normally do it. Don't let that one get by you. Because to me it's very important. It's one of the few places where you literally see the longevity of God himself described in a term. And that's the Greek for it. So let's move on, verse 8. I don't know if we're going to be able to, yeah, we've got a little time. We'll get started in 16 anyway, but let's go over verse 8 here in chapter 15. John goes on. 
And he says the temple, this is the temple where the evidence is kept. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Where have you seen that before? Well, they used to see that in the temple in Israel. When the glory of God would come down <coughs> and interact with them during the, the sacrifices, and the smoke from the glory of God would fill the temple. So here, this temple was filled with smoke out from the glory of God and out from His power. And it should read, you see where it says, and no man? Well, let me assure you, no man is here. There is no man there. This is a very poor translation. And it should literally read, and not even one was able to enter into the temple. It's not men, because you're not going to find any men at this point in the heavenly places. No man hath ascended into heaven. There's none there yet. No one was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So that temple contains that evidence and it's off limits until these vials full of the plagues are poured out. Everybody agree with that? Makes sense so far? There's no one, not, yeah, it's not no man. There's no one. No one angel, no one anything is able to go in there. It's off limits. And when God puts something off limits, trust me, it's off limits. You know, they tied a, did they not tie a rope around the high priest? So that when he went into the, the holy place, that if he messed up and was killed, they had a way to drag his body back out of there. You remember that? So let's move on to chapter 16. John has very well laid the, the groundwork. <coughs> Moving into the seven angels with the seven vials that contain the seven plagues of what? The wrath of God. So now we're going to read about that. Revelation 16.1. We'll go as far as we get and we'll stop where we stop. John said, and I heard a great voice out of the temple. And the great voice was saying to the seven angels, here's the instructions from the temple that nobody can go in. Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God. Where? Upon the earth. I'm pretty sure wasps are in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so the instructions come from the temple to the angels, go your way, pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And so it commences. The final wrath of God upon the earth. Verse 2, and the first went, the first angel went, and poured out his vial upon the earth. Listen to this. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. You see who the wrath 
is being poured out upon them that take the mark and worship the image and play into the beast. That's the first vial that's poured out. That's kind of like targeted audience. Yeah, that's kind of like when uh, when they they took the ark of the covenant into the battle, you know, and these people got involved with it. Oh yeah, and and they paid the price. Oh yeah, exactly. Oh, that was the ones that stole that. That was a small price. Right. Yeah. But this 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 is going to be a lot worse, I think. You're right. That's a good point. So the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, verse 2. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. And John doesn't mince any words. He goes right on through it. The second angel, verse 3. The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea. So the first one poured out his vial upon the earth. The second on the sea is a difference. Listen to this. And it, the sea, became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. Every You mean a soul can die? Evidently. Every living soul died. The nephesh, the breathers. Everything that breathes in the sea dies. Because the sea becomes blood of a dead man. What happens to blood when the person dies? It quits being really liquid after a while. It turns into a syrup. It really gets super thick. It gels. Yeah. Nasty. Yeah. That's why we, we try to bleed our... When we clean deer, we try to get the blood out as soon as you can. Because the longer you wait, the harder it is. Yeah. Because the blood congeals. Like fish? Everything. Every, it says, uh, it, it became as the blood of a dead man and every living breather. Soul here is probably uh, psyche, but the inference is every living, breathing creature in the sea dies. So you can save the earth all you want to, folks. Guess what's going to happen in the end? And I'm not saying we need to preserve our planet. I'm just saying we put a little too much emphasis on it sometimes. I mean, we do. We as humans do pretty stupid stuff. Even a dog won't use the bathroom where it, where it normally lives. I mean, but we just, we throw trash everywhere as humans. We're, we're pretty pretty pitiful about that. But I just, I just think it's ironic that with all the Save the Planet and Earth Day and all of these things, what ultimately happens? Everything in the sea is going to die. Do you believe that? Yeah. The, the word said there would be no more seeds. Yeah. Eventually there won't even be any more seeds. You're right. Yeah, when it burns up. Yeah. And God's day. Evidently, there's energy in that blood. Regardless, that's got to be taken away. What Exactly. God knows where all the blood is, and there's energy in it. Or does it just mean a living, breathing? Well, the soul is who you are. 
It was soul here. Yeah, it's it's an inference if you. It's just the power to live. Oh, okay. Yeah, they have, but the spirit of an animal, the spirit that is life, when the animal dies, according to Ecclesiastes, it goes back to the earth. Right. That power to live, what we call soul or the nephesh, the breather, that breath goes back to the to the earth, whereas that of a believer goes to the God that gave it. Right. Of a human. Humans are different. Yes. Humans are different from the animals, mm-hmm. unless the human is an unbeliever. Right. And then Ecclesiastes says, as one dieth, comparing to the animals, so dieth the other. Yeah. All go into one place, it says. Okay. I understand. So the, the human that doesn't believe is grouped with the animals as far as their spirit and where their spirit ends up. And their spirit doesn't have consciousness it doesn't have any uh, life of its own. It doesn't have conscious. It doesn't have thought. It's merely, it's like a battery that powers a tool. Mm-hmm. You put the battery in the tool, it does what it wants to do. It lives. You pull that battery off, the tool's dead. Mm-hmm. No difference. Okay. That's a, the best analogy I can give. That makes sense. I was just so every living soul in the sea, it dies. They, they suffocate, literally. On congealed blood. Verse 4. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters. And guess what? They too become blood. I see us running out of uh, water to drink here. And I don't even think being a prepper is going to help you much here. Third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. Can you imagine what's happening to the delicate balance of nature as we read these things? Nature is shot here. It's blown out. It's gone. All the interrelationships of the evaporation and the rain and... The heat and the cold and all this stuff is off the, it's off the table. It's all gone. So the rivers and the fountains of waters, according to verse four from the third angel and his vow, they become blood. Verse five. And I heard the angel of the waters say, did you know? That there was an angel of the waters. We read about the angel of the holy fire last week. Yeah. Okay. The the angel of the water we, we controls get, the world. Well, we get that idea from uh, the Euphrates because we realized and understood. I did that the angel had been in the waters of the Euphrates. There's something in all there all this time. There's something in there that's going to be released someday. Yeah. And so you wonder if that if that's one of the, the well, let's, the same let's read on. Now, I hope I got your curiosity up because I certainly have mine up. And I heard the angel of the waters say, here's what he says, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. 
So this angel of the waters attests to the righteous judgment of the Lord. It's a witness of it. Well, what is that temple for? The temple holds the evidence. Did the angel come out of the temple? So he knows what's in there, right? Yeah. And he says, looks, looks righteous to me, Lord. It's what the angel of the waters says, whoever this creature is. Interesting. Right. I mean, just, you read these things in Revelation and you just gloss over them. And you don't really stop and think about them, but we've already seen the angel of the fire. Remember last week? The holy fire. Now we have an angel of the waters. There is an angel in charge of the waters. Remember God said, what holds the waters back? When he, when he created the firmament between the waters above and the waters below, what holds the water in its place? God does through the power of this angel. There, is, there evidently is an angel in charge of the waters. And it makes sense to me. I can believe that God would do that. But I, I never thought about it till I saw this. And the same thing about the angel of the fire. The holy fire. That too blows my mind as I read it. Let's go one or two more and we'll stop. Verse 5, I heard the angel of the water say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. See, the crime fit the punishment, and the punishment fit the crime. And the angel attests, to the righteous judgment of God and how he handled it. You see that? Yeah. That's amazing. You have the testimony of the angel of the waters attesting to the righteous judgment of God the Father. <coughs> Let's go to verse 7. He says, And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous, are thy judgments. There was another out of that altar spoke up and said, Yes, true and righteous are thy judgments. Why do you think there was two? Because in the mouths of two or more witnesses is the thing so. Two witnesses come forth that speak from this temple. One is the angel. The other one is the other that's heard. Giving testimony, witness testimony of the righteousness of God and the righteousness of His judgments. You did the right thing. Not that God needs that, but the ratification of this, I believe, is necessary for the context here. The ratification by the angels of what God's doing in His righteous judgment. And we'll stop here. We'll stop at verse 7 uh, for today. And we'll pick up with chapter 16, uh, verse 8 next week as we continue our look into the seven angels and the seven vials that are poured out upon the earth and the final righteous judgment and the final righteous wrath of God 
as it's poured out uh, upon the earth itself. So let me stop the recorder here.